Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. While we were worshiping, just just kind of just receive this. I just wrote this down. There's something about that 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 bridge of only a moment to live this life, like shooting stars burning up the night. That just it lights my soul on fire when I hear it. It's like we just have this short time to leave a legacy and make an impact for the kingdom of God and for people to know Him, and then it's eternal bliss with Him. And then it's eternity with the ones that we love. And then it's, it's reward and it's entering into that place that he's prepared for us, that he went and said, I'm going and making a place for you that where I am, you may be also. Good. It's like this life is so short. And, and so, um, is there? Oh. I, I wrote this down. Like arrows that started as a tree that you've created, so are we, Lord. You've taken us and fashioned us as an arrow. You've given us purpose and ability. You've equipped us to accomplish our tasks. Let us be strung into the bow that is your purpose and will and desire for our lives and be launched into the earth, going where you've sent us, piercing everything you've called us to pierce, and only returning to the earth after we have completed your purpose and your will for our lives. So, Father, let us be like that. Let us just be launched by the bow of your will and your purpose for our lives, God. And we would go everywhere that you've called us to go. We would pierce everything you've called us to pierce. God, that we would only return back to the earth when we have accomplished all that you created us to accomplish. When we've become everything you destined us to become. And then we'll return to the earth and into your waiting arms. Father, help us to live with that urgency. Not in a panicked way, God. But with the weight of this short moment called life that you've blessed us with, that we would live with that in mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, we're going to take up the, the offering, and then I, I have a message that it's something that has really been burning in me for a long time, and it's something Patty and I have talked about actually quite a bit. And, um, but just real quickly, before the baskets come, if you have something to give, um, hold it in your hand, and if you don't have something to give, just hold your hand up and be thankful that something's coming. And, and, and so, Father, we thank you. Just, just say it with me. Father, we thank you. And we have something to give. If my hand is empty, God, you have my heart. I know that something's coming. And it'll be yours, because I belong to you already. In Jesus' name, amen. It's the truth. Like, if he has your heart, the things that come into your hand will be nothing compared to that. Like, once he has your heart, like, everything else lines up. And um, so rather than than teaching that he wants your finances, we'd rather teach that he desires your heart, and from that, everything else flows. Like, think about it. Like, what would you hold on to that's natural when you've already surrendered your heart to him? And, and, And this is the amazing thing, is, like, he takes everything we give him and he makes it beautiful. Like, think about what he did with the worst of you. Like, you gave him your guilt, your shame, your condemnation. You gave him the things that, that you did that you, you hoped nobody would ever know about. 
the, the things done in darkness that just kept you up at night and wouldn't let you sleep. And he took those and he exchanged them and gave you a robe of righteousness. He took our filthy rags that our self-righteousness was and he said, I'll take that and I'll make it beautiful and I'll clothe you in the righteousness of my son, Jesus. So if he can do that with the worst of what we have to give, what would he do when we give him the best that we have? Like when he takes everything and makes it beautiful, imagine with the things he's already given us that start beautiful and we give them back into his hands. What can he do with that? He restores and he redeems and he makes all things beautiful, makes all things new. And so honestly, if you ever feel like someone here wants your money, don't trust your feelings because all we want is your heart to belong to him. And after that, we trust that he'll move. And when we become like him, the lesser things hold so little value because of the greater thing. And so, um, man, I, I, there's, there is, there's something on that that's a, that's a word for right now about just that, that only a moment thing of like, I feel like the Lord is wanting his bride to understand the day that we live in and understand like, not in a panicked way, not in a, a way uh, that causes us to be stressed or, or, or uh, anxious or any of that stuff. Because he said, be anxious over nothing. That would include even looking at this life in light of eternity. He's not using anxiety to motivate you because he said not to be anxious. Like, never think that the Lord is using something he called you out of to move you where he wants you. Like, he, he's not, that he'll, like, if your anxiety pushes you into his arms, praise him for that. But when he told you not to be anxious, that means he's not using anxiety to move you around. He told you to be free from it. He's not using it to control you. Like, he's not using sin to get you where he wants you. He'll use our sin and work it for our good when we surrender to him. But it wasn't his plan from the beginning because he already told you not to do those things. And he's not double-minded. He's not a man that he should lie. There's no shadow of turning in him. So when we end up somewhere that was in violation of his will, we don't blame him and say, well, this is what God wanted. No, it's not. I can find in the word what he wanted. You violated it to get there. Now you surrender to him and he'll redeem that and he'll work it for good. But it wasn't his desire from the beginning because from the beginning he said, don't do that. I don't want you to do that because the wages of that is death, and I don't want death in your life. I came to bring life and life abundant. So if something brings death and he came to bring life, that something isn't him. Amen. It's super simple. Like it's an easy filter. Does this bring life or death? If it brings death, the enemy came to steal, kill, and destroy. But I came that you might have life and life abundantly. Is this leading in me into abundant life or is it leading me into death? It's really easy to see whose fingerprints are on the thing that I'm dealing with. Now, just because it didn't come from him doesn't mean that it's greater than him. He's greater than all things. And as soon as we turn to him, he takes that thing and he turns it and he works it for our good because we love him and are called according to his purpose. He is that good father who's standing on the porch watching and he sees his son. You notice he didn't run to his son while his son was in the mess. Why? He had no interest in his son being with him during that time because he wanted his son to feel the consequence of walking away from the kingdom so that he would see the consequence of his actions and remember how good it was in his father's house and actually turned, but the second the son turned, the father runs to him and overwhelms him. You notice he doesn't wait. He's not saying, well, I guess we'll wait and see. 
Yeah, he's taken one step back towards me, but it's a long road back home, and we'll see if he's got it in him. We'll see. We'll see if, if, if he really means it this time. We'll see how far he's willing to walk. He doesn't do any of that. The second the son turns towards the father in his heart and takes the first step back towards him, the father runs to where he is, overwhelms him. And that is the, the, the truth of God loving you where you are, but you notice he doesn't leave him there. He has no interest in you staying there. He loves you where you are, but he really wants you where he is. And so he comes and gets the son, and he loves him where he is, but he says, where you are, I love you, but I don't love where you are. I have something so much better for you. Would you just come with me and let me bring you back to where you were always meant to be? I love you where you are, but I don't love where you are. We got to realize that. Like, otherwise, we'll take this message of, well, God just loves me where I am, and to use it as permission to stay somewhere that he doesn't desire for us to stay. And we'll start making grace an excuse rather than an empowerment. And it'll become the thing that enables us to stay where he never intended us to be. And we'll call it walking in the favor of God or walking in the grace of God. But it's not his grace that keeps you there. It's his grace that pulls you from there and takes you from that place and brings you where he desires for you to be, which is far away from that place. But his love for you never wavers where you are. I'm telling you, God loves you where you are, but he does not always love where you are. We understand that. Then it becomes easy. When we see, oh, wait a minute, I've ended up somewhere I was never meant to be. Wasn't it so much better when I was with him, living within his kingdom, living within his home, living within his boundaries? And so the son realizes I was so much better there. Even the person that's the least inside of that kingdom lives better than the person that's the greatest outside of it. I've got to get back there. And the father sees that heart and sees he wants to come back runs to him, overwhelms him with his goodness, restores his name. David says, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He restores my soul. He takes what was lost. He doesn't just take away the things that were never meant to be there. He gives back and restores the things that were always meant to be. That's how complete our salvation in him is. It's not simply an atonement that takes something away. It's a restoration of all things that not only takes away what was never meant to be, but restores what always was. I'm telling you. Um, all right, that was the free part. <laughs> we get to the message. Um, now, open your Bibles up to Psalm 103, because there, there is something that, that's, been, that's really been, been burning in me, and, and it's something that's been the source of a lot of conversations between my wife and I, and it, it's this idea of worship. And listen, I, I don't want us to get hung up on words, so when we're, I know that, that our lives surrendered to him is our spiritual act of worship. I get that. But there's also a uh, worship that includes us actually opening our mouths and extolling the Lord and praising the Lord and worshiping him and magnifying him and posturing ourselves before him in a position of surrender and yielding ourselves to him. And, and, and so that's the worship that I'm talking about. The, yes, everything that we do should be a form of worship because we do everything as if unto the Lord. But, but for the sake of this message this morning, I want to talk about the actual thing that we would call worship, like what we just did just a minute ago as a corporate group. Because that's something that has been an important part of, of this house ever since the very beginning when there was just 20 people here, was that we loved to worship and we always wanted to just engage in worship and, and we always were, were, wanted to be spirit-led and never wanted it to be a performance. Never that, like, the thought of performing up here makes me feel nauseous. Like, the thought that somebody is up here because they think that 
it is their way to something or because they want praises from people for what they do rather than directing people into the presence of God is gross. And that's been something we have always been very careful to watch. And it's always something that we have, you know, it's, it's something that we're mindful of. And as leadership, we're very careful about who we allow on stage and, and the why behind it. Because the why is so important. Because if we're looking at the exterior things, we can be fooled. God said that. He said, listen, man's busy looking at the outside, but I, the Lord, am the one who searches the heart of men. I know the why behind it. And that's what matters to me. And so we, we have, and we've, we've valued worship and stuff. But one thing I want to make sure that we realize is that, that sometimes, like, like what we just saying, like when I wake in the morning and you're the light that floods me and you're the first thought in my mind, and there are these times where worship is just this natural thing that is just bubbling up in your heart and pouring out of you, and you can't help but to worship, and nobody could stop you from worshiping. Like you're just so full of, of gratefulness and gratitude and thankfulness and the awareness of God and fixated and focused on his presence, and you just, it just comes pouring out of you. It's like you'd have to actually stop it to make it stop. There's no choice involved. You know what I'm talking about? Like those days where it's just like you just wake up and it's like the angels join you in singing and you're just like you're in the throne room. Holy, 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 you know, and, and, and everything is right. And that, those times are amazing. But then there's the times where we actually have to choose to worship, where there's, there's things going on around us that actually don't look good, or there's a report we've heard that isn't good, or, or there's circumstances we find ourselves in where, where the circumstance isn't good, and it's in those moments that we actually have to choose him, and there's nothing fake about choosing to worship when I don't feel like it. Otherwise, my feelings are, are Lord, not Jesus. I'm not going to worship only when I feel like it. Otherwise, I'm reduced to only being able to worship when everything around me is going well. And that means my exterior circumstances are God, not him. And so there's these times, I'm telling you, and it can feel fake if we don't understand that, where it's like I'm choosing in this moment to worship you, not because I feel like it, but because you're worthy of being praised. And, and Psalm 103 is, like, is such an amazing uh, example about that. Of that, and so if you have your Bibles, you can open them up to that. But, but I was just thinking, we've been talking a lot about this, and like honestly, I love this. I love that we have skilled musicians. There's nothing wrong with wanting skilled musicians to lead people in worship. In fact, it's biblical. When the Lord was having musicians lead his people into battle, he said, Bring forth the skilled musicians, have them go ahead and lead people into battle. Why? Because he's put that inside of them. It's a grace upon their life. And when they respond in a way where they lead people with the, with the ability he's given them, they're actually cooperating with the grace that's upon their life. And then that grace isn't in vain. So Paul was talking about when he said that I, who I am, I am because of the grace, the unmerited favor, the grace of God. Right? And he said, but that grace wasn't in vain. Why? He said, because I labored more than all the others, but not I, but that grace. And what's he saying? He's saying, I, I said yes to the grace that was upon my life, and I actually did what I was called to do, and I cooperated with, and I flowed with that grace, and it accomplished what that grace came into my life to accomplish, meaning that grace wasn't in vain. And so there's things that God's graced you for. You know, you were saved by faith, by grace through faith, not of works, not of yourself, lest any man should boast, but you were saved for good works 
that he prepared beforehand that you, that we, that I, that we should walk in them. In other words, that grace came to not only change me, but there's also an empowerment in that grace for me to accomplish the things that he created me to do. And that's how the grace of God isn't in vain, is when we actually say yes to the grace on our life and walk in it. And don't try to walk in the grace on somebody else's life. Like, don't try to be somebody other than who you're graced to be. Otherwise, you're fighting against rather than flowing with the grace that's on your life. And the truth of the matter is, is it like, I, I remember having a conversation with a friend and saying, like, don't try to be me. We already have me. We need you. And if you're trying to be me, we're missing you. Don't try to flow in the grace that's on somebody else's life. Find what God has graced you for and then say yes to that and you'll accomplish and labor more than all the others around you that aren't flowing in their grace. And so there is this thing of, I love that. I love that we have skilled musicians that lead people, that have a grace on their life to lead people in worship. But if this is a condition, if the atmosphere Find the word atmosphere in the Bible as it pertains to the presence of God. I'll just save you some time. You won't. If, if the song style, if the volume. I, look, I, I, I love the style of worship that we do here. And, and, and I think that, that it's, it's part of, of who we are as a church culture. It's, just some, it's the way that we worship and we have a style of worship that we kind of naturally flow in that, that we love. But if I need that to be able to worship, then I'm actually, it's not the sound of worship, it's the worship of sound. If I need the lighting, if I need the room, if I need the atmosphere, if I need the sound, if I need the style, if any of those things can control my worship, then they're Lord, not Jesus. And I just want to make sure that we understand that like, while all these things are amazing, if the only time I can worship or I am led into the depth of worship that I experience on Sunday morning is when I'm here and all this is here, then that means I'm subject to something other than Jesus and worshiping him the rest of the week when this isn't here. And I promise you, like, if that's the case, it's not actual worship. It's an emotional response to somebody performing in what God has given them. And they may be worshiping, but you're worshiping them and what they're creating more than you're worshiping the one who created them. And I never want that to happen. I never want us to base worship on emotion. Like, listen, I, and I've had people say, like, well, I just don't think worship should be an emotional thing. Give me a break. You show me one person in the Bible that encountered the presence of the Lord and was staring into the face of God and didn't have an emotional response. Isaiah sees the train of his robe fill the temple. He falls on his face and says, woe is me. I am an unclean man among unclean people with unclean lips. Like he is so aware of who he's not when he enters into the presence of God. But here's the truth. In a new covenant believer who's been born again, our response should never be to see who we're not when we're in his presence. It's to see who we're called to be because we've been made new. You're a new creation. You're filled with new wine. Now, I got this revelation the other day about the new wine. I was, I was um, reading through John, and it was right after I read about the woman at the well, and I was reading where Jesus changed the water into wine at the, at the uh, wedding, or right before the woman at the well, and I was reading about Jesus um, changing the water into wine at the wedding, and, and this line stuck out to me. The steward of the home says to Jesus when they brought the new wine, you are a shrewd man for most people, or to the master of the home, he said, you're a shrewd man most people. 
give the good wine first. And then when those people have drank their fill, they bring out the worst wine. But you saved the best for last. And it hit me. It was a revelation, and this man didn't even know what he was saying, but he was prophesying that what had come before was actually the lesser, and now what had come through Jesus was the greater. And that's why we have to be new wineskins, and that's why the word says that if any man is in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. Behold, the old wineskin. Old things have passed away. All things have been made new. You're a new wineskin. Why? Because you had to be made new so that you could actually receive the new wine that is Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God inside of you. And what is come now is so much greater than what was before. Isn't that amazing? You think about that. You're a new wineskin. He took what you were and made you who you needed to be so that you could actually handle and contain the presence of God inside of you. And then think about this. What does it happen when new wine gets put into a new wineskin and it expands and it stretches and it makes the new wineskin bigger than it was until what's inside of it needs to be poured out to other people so others can receive what's been inside of the skin? That's you, that's me. We're new wineskins and he's pouring himself into us and it's expanding and it's becoming the greatest wine that the world has ever tasted and then it's poured out and people receive that in and the process repeats and repeats and repeats and the wine, like the oil, just keeps on multiplying. <laughs> I'm done. Someone said amen. Amen. I'll find you after service. <laughs> so, because <laughs> no, you read these verses over and over again, and all of a sudden, that's revelation. Like, the Spirit of God opens your eyes, and you see something, and now that you've seen it, you can't unsee it. And this is how this gospel is a continually unfolding revelation, because it's like, all of a sudden, I see this. I see that the new wine is greater than the old wine, and it's Jesus that came and delivered the new wine. And all of a sudden, I start thinking about wineskins, and old wine, and new wine. Then I start thinking about old creation, and new creation. And it's just like, oh, God, thank you that I'm a new wineskin. Thank you that what I was wasn't capable of receiving what you had, and you weren't okay with that. So you did away with the old, and you made me new. You're not a fixed-up version of you. It says, if any man is in Christ, he is therefore now a new creation. That means he created something new. That which never was now exists. Why? Because that what he wants to give couldn't be poured into what was, so he had to make you what is so that he could come and live inside of you and you could actually be capable of being a temple of the Spirit of God and standing before him in the beauty of holiness. It says that in the Old Covenant. It says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In the Old Covenant, the beauty of his holiness revealed the ugliness of our unrighteousness. In the New Covenant, we stand before him in the beauty of holiness because we're robed with the righteousness of Christ. And he is able to present us before the Father, holy, blameless, upright, beyond reproach. (laughs) This is what we have one life to live. This is what we have one life to be made the greatest reality of our life so that when we are, find ourselves anywhere, the thing that we're the most aware of is this new creation reality that he has blessed us with through the death of his son Jesus and the resurrection and the belief and the life everlasting that we receive through that. We have that. We carry that around. We're like, we carry that treasure within our earthen vessels. 
You know, that's what he's talking about in Corinthians. When he, like it all ties together. He says, if any man destroys this temple, God will destroy him for his temple is holy. And that is what you are. You're a temple that's holy. Why? Because you've been made the habitation, the dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And what does light have to do with darkness? And how could Baal exist with the Father? They have nothing to do with each other. That's why he says, your eyes single, whole bodies flooded with light. It means he says, if you understand and you look with one purpose, everything within you becomes flooded with light. Your whole body. You're not a little bit of darkness, a little bit of light. If you're looking at him single-eyed, with the understanding of who you've been made in Christ. It says your whole body is flooded with light. You tell me a place in a body that's flooded with light where darkness could exist. You've, you've never seen it. You've never walked into a room and thrown on a light switch in a wide open room with no shadow and there been any darkness that the light couldn't pierce. Ever. You've never looked in your room and been like, well, that's odd. I turned the light on, but there's darkness right there. It stayed. It, it can't happen. Why? Because the existence of light is the absence of darkness. And when your whole body is flooded with light, that means your whole body is emptied of darkness. Does that mean you're going to live perfectly and never get it wrong? No. So if we sin, we have Jesus, the advocate, the one who's before the Father, who's made himself the propitiation for our sins. So if you do, there is a propitiation already been made by Jesus through your sin, but that should be the ex exception to the Christian life, not the expectation of Christian life. Otherwise, you're living by faith in your ability to screw up greater than his ability to keep you from it. And Jude says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, he'll pick you up every time you stumble, but man, would he love to be the one who keeps you from it. He's the lifter of your head, yes, but he's also the one who can keep you from stumbling. If all you reduce him down to is a rescue, and you believe that life is just me screwing it up and Jesus rescuing me over and over again, how on earth can you ever take your eyes off of your own faults and failures and see the world around you that's dying to know the Jesus that's supposed to live inside of you? We have to be more aware of his ability to keep us than our ability to remove ourselves from that plan. And if you sin, if you sin, we have one, the advocate Jesus, and we can boldly come into his throne room in that time and receive grace in our time of need. So um, Psalm 103, did you guys turn there? I will get to part of it. You can watch the rest of the podcast, maybe. It says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Then he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not none of his benefits. This is, there are times where David is writing, and you can tell that his heart is just pouring out worship, and he's not having to even think about it. He writes like, God, you are a high and exalted so far above all the earth, above every nation, above every principality. You are exalted, O God. O God, you are greater than all. Like he just, it just I, bet, I, I imagine him with his pen trying to keep up with his heart as what's inside of him is just pouring out and he's writing this worship. This is not one of those times. This is a time where he's having to look and say, all that's within me doesn't feel like blessing the Lord right now and praising his holy name. This is why you don't live by your emotions or by your feelings, because if you don't feel like worshiping God, you can get introspective and start thinking, what's wrong with me? And then you start tailspinning, thinking, oh no, something must be wrong. And now your attention is on why you don't want to rather than the reason that you should. Yeah. 
And so David realizes this and he recognizes this in a moment that this is one of those times where rather than me just worshiping out of the overflowing just joy of my heart, I'm actually having to choose in this moment to command everything within me to bless the Lord. And then he says this, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. If you ever find yourself in a place where it seems hard to worship, the best thing that you can do is stop and start to remember everything that God has done for you. And the first thing that David says is, who pardons all your iniquities. Why? Because that alone should bring my heart into an alignment when I understand he's forgiven every one of my sins. Now we see that God was through Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting their sins against them. So we beg as though God himself begs through us, be reconciled to God. That verse is telling us God has reconciled us to himself. He's not counting our sins against us. And now the only thing that's left is for us to accept and believe and receive the forgiveness that's already been paid for on Calvary, that's already been paid for by his death and resurrection, by his blood overcoming. And he's not holding our sins against us. And all of a sudden, if I start to think about that, if I just start to think, God, I thank you that you've made me a new wineskin. Father, I thank you that you've taken everything that was and you have made me new, God. You've wiped away so far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed my sin from me. Lost in the sea of forgetfulness, never coming up before your throne ever again because Jesus once for all has perfected those who are sanctified. And all of a sudden, now I'm remembering what he's done because the biggest thief of worship, I believe, is guilt and shame. The biggest thief thief, the number one reason you don't want to worship is because you are aware of what you've done wrong more than you're aware of what he's done right. And your eyes are sin conscious and focused on your failure rather than on his success. And all of a sudden you feel ashamed and you feel guilty. And the last thing you want to do is come before his presence because shame and guilt tells you you don't belong there. And now your focus is off of the very thing. Listen, in the cases like that, Honestly, the thing that you're being kept from is actually the answer to the problem in many instances. Because when you start to worship him in the beauty of holiness and you stand before his throne, I'm saying when you worship him, put yourself there. Not just on earth singing a song to heaven, because we're seated in Christ in heavenly places. Put yourself in that says we can boldly come into his throne room in our time of need. I'm saying picture yourself and put yourself standing before the throne of God and realizing I'm accepted. Not only am I accepted, I'm welcomed and I'm loved. I'm not rejected. I stand before him in the beauty of holiness. I've exchanged my filthy rags for his amazingly spotless robe of righteousness. He sees me holy, upright, upright, blameless, and above reproach. And all of a sudden, you've put yourself there because of truth, not because of feeling because your feelings may feel any other thing. That's why you don't live by them. They make amazing servants and horrible masters. They're an awesome accompaniment to your life. They're a horrible uh, uh, compass for your life. You, you know this. I mean, I talked about this so many times, but I'm telling you, it's so simple when you think about it like this. You've watched a movie that you knew was fake and cried. You knew it was fake before you started watching it. You knew this is not really happening. That little yellow dog didn't really die. And yet you sat there just saw, I, I know, I know. And you sobbed and you cried and you knew it was fake before you started watching. 
What's happened? Your emotions have caused a response in you based on something that you know isn't true. Imagine when things are being presented to you as truth, how quickly those emotions could cause a response that you feel. Well, this is just how I feel. Well, thank goodness that your feelings aren't Lord Jesus is. Well, you don't know what it feels like. It doesn't matter what it feels like. It matters what he says. And if what he said contradicts what you feel, tell your feelings to go away and set your eyes and focus them on Jesus, the author and the finisher, the perfecter, the beginning and the end. Or you can live by feelings, and then you'll be reduced to only living as good as the things around you are going. And you'll live mountain to valley. Because when things are good, you'll be on top of the mountain shouting his praises. Or when things are bad, you'll be down in the valley wondering where he went and why he's forsaken you. There's a place in him that is so stable and so steady that when things are good, you're praising him. When things are not good, you're praising him because my eyes are fixed on you, Lord, not on the things around me. And I respond to what you've said over my life and what you've done, not to what people have said and what people haven't done. Come on, that's the Christian life should we have moments of extreme joy and moments of sorrow? Yes, but they should never dictate his worth. They should never come at the expense of his worth. They should never cause questions like, well, if God is good, then how come to rise up within us? Because now we're saying we judge his goodness based on our circumstances rather than who he is and what he's done. And, but, but there will be times, like, like, we're not robots, like there will be times where things are hard and you're facing things that are, that are, that are tough and that are real and that, that hurt and that, that there's loss and all these things. And I'm not being insensitive to that stuff. I'm not saying you'll never feel any of that stuff. What I'm saying is if those feelings can keep you from worshiping him, the enemy will continually attack you in that place because he goes about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He can't devour those unless there's a response to that roaring voice. And when he sees that his voice causes you to tremble, he'll continue to roar. You'll continue to tremble and you'll be stuck in this place waiting for the enemy to stop rather than running to the one who's already defeated him and declaring his worth. That's, what worship, that's when worship becomes a weapon. That's when it becomes a sacrifice of praise. Is when in the face of everything that's screaming, every other thing, I choose to put my attention and my affection on him and declare his worth in spite of my surroundings, not because of my surroundings. And I'll worship him when things are good, but when things are bad, I'm going to run into his throne room and I'm going to worship him because everything going wrong with, around me makes me more thankful for how unshakable his character and nature is. It makes me more thankful for the promises that I have in him that are yes and amen through Christ. That's what worship is. It's not feel goods when they play my song. I love it when you feel good when they play your song. But if that's the extent of your worship, you're reduced to a feeling and hoping that Brandon put the song on the playlist that you like. <laughs> Look, I, we have our preference, but when pre preferences become conditions for worship, our preferences are Lord, not Jesus. I'm just going to let that land. <laughs> so the first thing he goes after is who pardons all your iniquities. Why? Because if you remember that your sin was paid for and that the blood of Jesus has washed you and cleansed you of all unrighteousness, that thing no longer has a voice that would keep you from entering into his presence. And you'll boldly go into his presence. But if that's not enough, the next thing he goes after, he says, who heals all your diseases. How many times has fear kept us from worshiping? 
because of something that was spoke over our lives that Jesus paid for us to be free from already. So he says, Here's, here, I'm going to bless you, and I'm commanding everything that's within me. He says, all that's within me, and that word there in the original says, from the center of my being, the core of who I am, the real me, the truth that's within me, that's what's going to respond to this. And he says, who, who pardons all my sin and who heals all your diseases. What's he saying? There's no guilt and shame and there's no fear of anything that's been spoke over you, any report that you received, anything you see that showed up, any ailment that doesn't seem like it's going to leave. Why? Because it has a name. That means it's below the name of Jesus. Anything that can be declared over you that has a name means that it's sub, it, is, it is inferior to the superior name of Jesus. And so David's reminding himself of this. He's saying, listen, he, he's the one that takes away everything that would keep me from his presence, from guilt and shame, from sin to, to diseases, whether that's a spiritual thing that is, is riddling and crippling your body or whether that's a physical thing. Because that word there for sickness, actually, for diseases, actually means sickness and malady. And it's used interchangeably for both spiritual and physical sickness throughout the Old Testament in the Hebrew language. It's not just a spiritual thing. And so he says, he says, I'm not going to let guilt and shame because I'm going to remember that you've forgiven all my diseases and I'm not going to let fear because I remember that you're greater than anything that I've heard, than any report. I'm not going to let any of those things keep me from praising you. And then he says this, and this is incredible. He says, who redeems your life from the pit and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. Now he moves away from what God takes away and he begins to talk about what God gives. See, the first thing that would keep me from entering in are things that are weighing on me. So he removes those. The next thing that would keep me from praising or forgetting the things that he's given to me. So he starts to talk about those. Because that word redeem there in the original language actually comes from the oriental origin. And it's the idea of the brother or kinsman principle, which meant that when something was destroyed or lost that a kinsman would come and redeem or purchase back everything that was taken. And if a parent or a, or, a, or a spouse was lost, they would actually take that person in and marry them and become a husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless. That's what that word redeem from the pit means. It means that not only does he come and pull you out of somewhere, he actually restores everything that was lost and he fills the void that was left where people are no longer filling. You don't have a problem because someone wasn't who they should have been. You have a problem because you've attached significance to that person that was meant to be attached to the Father. And it's awesome when people fulfill their responsibilities, but if their responsibility filling is a condition for your worship, then they're Lord, not Jesus. And I know that's hard to hear, and I know that that sounds like, that could sound so like, but it's truth, it is, it's idolatry. If a person not doing or doing can keep me from giving him the praise that he's due, then that person's performance is Lord of my life, not Jesus. That's why he redeems you from the pit. You realize like the enemy, remember when Joseph's brothers wanted to get rid of him? What did they do? They dug a, a pit. You realize a pit is just a hole in the ground unless you're in it. Let the, enemy, let the enemy dig holes everywhere. Just don't go in them. 
And, and, um, and, and even more than that, don't help him dig the pit. I promise you, when Joseph's brothers were digging the pit, Joseph didn't jump down in there and start helping them dig. But we do that when we agree with the liar and we empower his voice in our lives and we start to, to, to our, our, our attention becomes on. All he has to do is put a flaming dart about what somebody did and then all of a sudden we grab hold of that and we start digging that pit with him. And he's over there with a shovel and we've got our hands and we're working our hands raw, digging ourselves in the wrong direction and getting ourselves into a place that we're going to need rescue from. He's good at digging pits. Let him dig them. Don't live in them and don't help him. Don't grab a hold of that thing and start going, yeah, I know. I, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would worship God and I would jump around like everybody else is and I would be full of joy if so-and-so hadn't done and said this or if so-and-so would have done and would have said this and all of a sudden you've made that person Lord and your ability to praise is dependent on their ability to be who you think they need to be for you. And you just keep digging that pit and what happens if they never, ever become that? What if that person never realizes that what they did was wrong and never comes and asks you to forgive them? If you're allowing a place in your heart that says, I can't be okay until that person realizes what they did was wrong and asks for forgiveness, you are subject to them. To them. You've subjected yourself to a person rather than a king. They may never realize what they did was wrong. Don't stay in the pit waiting for them to come get you out. Realize that he came to set you free. And don't stay there for a day. And this is why we need to talk straight to each other about this stuff. Because a man down in a pit doesn't need a pillow to be comfortable. He needs a rope of truth to get him out. No one should try to make you comfortable in your pit. Think about that. We think it's loving to make people feel good where they are and, and massage them and, 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 and tenderly, like, you know, well, I understand. I get it, man. If it was me, I'd be the same way, and I can't believe, and all this stuff. And all we're doing is throwing pillows down to them and saying, I want to keep you in there, and I want you to be comfortable there. If you're walking down the road and you hear help coming out of a hole in the ground and you walk over and there's a man in a pit and you start throwing pillows to him, there's something wrong with you when you've got a rope of truth that you could actually give them where they could come out of the pit and not be comfortable there because they're not there anymore. I don't want to be comfortable in a pit. I want to get out. And it's truth that sets me free. And sometimes truth doesn't feel good in the moment. Why? Because no discipline feels good at the moment for the moment. But in the end, its fruit is borne out. Its wisdom is borne out by the fruit. Come on, we, 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 we do not need a bunch of people walking around with pillows tossing them into pits. We need people that believe the truth that set them free is the truth that will set these people free. What, if, what, would, it, what would it profit anyone if you could make people the most comfortable in their pit? You're the greatest pit comfort maker in the world. I'm saying when people are miserable and trapped in a pit, you can come along and your words can make them feel so good there. What does that profit anyone? What does it profit anyone? He redeemed you from the pit. And then it says this. Now I'll close with this. This is incredible. It says, who crowns you with loving kindness. That word crown there is a Hebrew word, atar. It means to encircle, to attack, or protect. So think about this. He says, God, your loving kindness and, circle, and compassion encircle me to defend me and protect me, but also to attack anything that would come against me. You want to see a literal picture of it? 
Elisha is in a tent, and he's surrounded by the angel of the Lord. But more aware of what's around them than what's upon them is his servant. His servant looks out and says, we're surrounded. And he starts to panic. And you notice Elisha doesn't pray. God encircle our enemies. God send angels to surround our enemies. He doesn't pray that. Why? Because he understands. I've been encircled by you not only to protect me, but to attack that which would try to attack me. And so he looks and he says, open his eyes. And suddenly the eyes of the servant are open to the truth that was always there. And he says, oh, well, there are many more with us. We sing that. We sing it may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. That's, what this is, that's where this is coming from. Even if people don't realize it, it's that word. He says, he says you you crown me, you encircle me to defend and protect, but also to attack. You just think about these things. You think about what could keep you from praising him if you start remembering the redemption that he paid for with Jesus and the fact that he's no longer holding your sins against you. That alone should just burst your heart into flames where all you want to do is be at his feet thanking him, but if it didn't, He's healed all our diseases. That there's nothing that could come upon us that's, that's greater than his power within us. And if that's not enough, now I remember he redeemed my life from the pit. He didn't just take me out of the pit. He restored what was missing and he became for me what people had abandoned. And if that's not enough, then I can remember anything I'm looking at, he's already encircled me to protect me from, but he's already circled them. That's what it talks about when it says, though a thousand may fall at your left and 10,000 at your right, it shall by no means touch you. Only with your eyes will you look on and see the destruction of the wicked. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, it doesn't matter how many there are, you're going to watch them fall because everything that's surrounding you has been surrounded by me and I never lose. So Father, would you just, listen, that's what worship is. Worship is coming into his presence knowing that we're not only okay there we're desired there that he saw us hiding behind the tree in a fig leaf and said i can't stand for people to hide from my presence i have to have that communion with them that i created them for and so he created a sacrifice that allowed us to boldly walk out when he called our name that you belong there he doesn't just obligingly let you in and go who is it <laughs> um sir it's, it's it's roy why should i let you in um jesus no He's in, he is the father on the porch that's waiting and that sees your heart and overwhelms you as you respond and worship to him. So, Father, would you just help us to never go by an emotion and to never be accused by the enemy of faking it when we choose to worship you in spite of things rather than because of things. God, would you make us people that worship you when it feels good and worship you when it doesn't? because we're worshiping you, not our feelings. Father, help this house to, to, to continue to always be a place of purity. God, a place that upholds a standard of Jesus and that strives, God, to live with no compromise. God, that, 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 that our worship isn't about having the greatest sound, although we really want to have great sound. 
It's about the one that we're worshiping. You are the object of our affection, of our attention, of our desire. Father, if we ever get to a place where it feels hard to worship, would you remind us of these things? Would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? Would you restore to us the peace, our youthful abandonment to you? That Jeremiah 2, where the heart of the Father is crying out, he says, I remember you in the day of your youth when you were devoted to me, when you were set apart and holy to me as a God. God, would you bring us back to that place of youthful devotion to you? God, help us to continue to be a people of praise and a people of worship. And let what we do on Sunday be the smallest part of our worship lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.